Welcome. What a show we have for you today. Twitter and education. What do they have in common? Well, Ghana's leading technology radio show is the answer. Welcome to City Trends. My name is Philip Ashon and City Trends is sponsored by First National Bank. You can open a First National Bank account today to experience world-class online banking. Call 0242-35050 or 0800-770522 or visit firstnationalbank.com.gh for more information right now. First National Bank, how can we help you? On the show today... This shift coming to Ghana means the spotlight is going to move on to Ghana to say, okay, if Twitter is setting shop here, we should be looking out for opportunities here. And that means looking for talent, right? And I can say and speak on authority that Ghana has one of the best tech talents, uh, a talent pool you can ever find. The, the evidence suggests that this over focus on root learning, on true poor pass and forget, on infrastructure, on pass rate and others is actually leading to poorer educational outcomes for Ghanaian children. We, we, are, we are all trying to fix the problem from different angles because what is a big elephant, you have to tackle from all angles. Where is the glue? There's lots to digest and dissect and get into. So let's get straight into the conversation. And it's all about Twitter in Ghana. Share your thoughts and opinions on the show via the WhatsApp number 054-998-6996. Tweet at us using hashtag CityTrend. It is not every day you get to hear of big announcements by global technology companies about how they are setting up office in an African country, let alone a Ghanaian situation like we had yesterday where Twitter made the big announcement uh, setting up its head office or headquarters for Africa in Ghana. But the real issue is, what is the story behind this? How did this happen? What does it mean for the technology community in Ghana? How does it change or enhance our portfolio for investments and for investors in the tech community and in Ghana generally? Well, it is not um, the full story um, that I have at present, but one guy who has the full details right in front of him is Foster Akugri and um, he is with Hack Lab, uh, one of the uh, main people at Hack Lab, and he joins us to give us some insight into exactly what this is all about, Twitter in Ghana. Um, Foster, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, so what exactly is going on? If you would um, break it down for us, what is happening with Twitter? And um, why is Jack um, making all these announcements with Nanado replying and everybody talking about it on Twitter, please? Give us some insight. We are all very, very excited and poised about, about this whole news, right? Um, you rarely find uh, uh, these large unicorns and tech firms 
considering Ghana as a choice of, 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 of destination to set up their Africa HQ. But today, I believe Ghana has significantly made a drastic change in positioning ourselves on the continent. We have become the gateway for the Africa continental free trade area, the largest trade agreement ever on the, uh, in the entire world today. And this puts us in a very, very unique position that most of us may not be considering from that point of view. Because yes, the typical Ghanaian still doesn't understand what the AFCFTA means to them. But in the international market, and for big unicorns like this, making a move on a continent this large, they definitely want to be as close as possible to where decisions are made about business for the continent. And uh, I, I personally have the belief that uh, the African Union uh, uh, biggest secretariat now sits or biggest ministry now sits in Ghana and this puts us in a very very wonderful unique position. Uh, typically most most of these firms would consider a large market or a, or a country with a large addressable market like our neighbors in Nigeria and see that most of the tech firms who set up their HQs in Africa usually have their, their businesses sitting in, in Nigeria. So we talk about Microsoft, we talk about Facebook, we talk about IBM. Uh, most of these firms have their Africa uh, sub-region operations sitting in Nigeria. But today, uh, we are happy to be celebrating the news that Twitter is going to set up shop in Ghana. And that's very, very exciting, right? Um, for us, at Hack Lab, this means a lot to us. Yeah, it means a lot to be part of this history, right? And we are very, very excited to see this relationship between Twitter, Hack Lab, Ghana, and Afochela, and a few other partners on the continent come to fruition or unfold. It's one thing to have a partnership, it's another thing to maximize the partnership and operationalize the relationship, right? And that is the bigger task ahead. This announcement is only a tip of the iceberg and what is about to happen is what you should be looking out for. And we are very, very excited to be part of this journey. Um, can you give us some insights into the partners who have made all of this possible? We spoke about Afrochella and, and a few others. Can you give us a, an idea of who has come together to make all of this possible? Well, um, I just, I'll just give us a general sense of, of what a typical uh, uh, organization like this coming into Africa will do, right? They'll typically pick top hotspots um, across the continent and do proper due diligence to understand the political and economic stability and to see whether either of these uh, uh, countries is on brand with them in terms of their positioning and whether it makes a lot of sense for their business model or business case for the Africa region. And so they typically do these due diligences to understand and that includes talking to locals on the ground to understand the actual situation because 
reading investment reports and sub-regional reports from the likes of World Bank, from, new, from, from, from the newspapers, from blogs, etc., doesn't do much justice to understanding clearly the situation on the ground, right? And so um, one of the privileges we've had was sharing our opinion about Ghana and Obviously, being able to secure a partnership between Hakla Foundation and Twitter meant they needed to do some due diligence on us. They needed to understand exactly what we are doing. They needed to understand how we are complementing the entire market. They needed to understand the state of affairs in the country. And I am very, very excited to say that um, we shared as much as we could. Uh, every single citizen, uh, let me just take this forum to address that every single one of us are ambassadors. And every time we mount a platform to speak about our country, be it a formal conversation, be it a semi-formal, be it an informal conversation, we have the responsibility of promoting our country. We have the responsibility of promoting it as a destination for anyone who is looking to come into Africa. And that is basically what we managed to do. And today, um, we see the results of that swing in our favor. Right? So for Twitter coming into, into, into Africa and setting up shop in Ghana, it means they are going to be driving their decisions in Africa from Ghana. And uh, eventually, as it unfolds, uh, we are going to be seeing, we, we just saw that when they launched uh, the news, they also published jobs, job openings uh, about setting up the office in Ghana. I think there are currently nine job openings with key, key roles around HR, with key roles around uh, senior communications manager, or specialist, there's a key role around a community manager and editor, there's a key role around policy and all of that. So all these people are going to be most likely employed from or for Ghana. And they are going to be making decisions for Africa sitting in Ghana. So it's like bringing the King's Palace to Ghana. And, and for us, it's an exciting time. And it means that we have the opportunity to input as much as possible in how things shape and take form for the rest of the country. Share your thoughts and opinions on the show via the WhatsApp number 054-998-6996. Tweet at us using hashtag CityTrend. What does this news represent for um, technology entrepreneurs in Ghana? I mean, there have been a, you know, a lot of conversation about the effectiveness um, about the competence, about a number of things when it comes to the technology entrepreneurs in the country. And what does this mm. announcement mean for the community generally? And what should it tell entrepreneurs in the country who are pursuing various solutions within the technology space? Mm, fantastic. So, <clears throat> First of all, this has increased what we call the opportunity perception index of the country, right? Uh, that's to say that chances of you being considered for an opportunity is high just because you come from this country. 
for a long time, we've seen a significant portion of Nigerians being absorbed into most of these unicorns. And I talk about the tech talents. You see a lot of these guys who are working for the Africa sub-region for most of these firms, uh, even in, out of the US, out of, the UK, uh, out of Europe, out of Asia, are Nigerians, right? And this shift coming to Ghana means the spotlight is going to move on to Ghana to say, okay, if Twitter is setting shop here, we should be looking out for opportunities here. And that means looking for talents, right? And I can say and speak on authority that Ghana has one of the best tech talents, uh, a talent pool you can ever find. And this is because of the work the Hakra Foundation has been doing for the last five years which gives us access to over 10,000 people in our community to be able to justify this. Earlier, uh, last year, somewhere November, October, November, December, we conducted the uh, Ghana Developer Census. Report is yet to be shared by the end of this month. And I just give you a teaser, the demographics, the distribution of talent across, we had a sample space, a sample size of about 300 people making an input into the survey, which we used to generate the very first report. And it was enough for us to get a sense of what the dynamics on the, on the continent looks like. And Twitter was a partner, uh, actually funded this, this research, right? And so it, you get to realize that there's a lot yet to be mined. And, and as a tech-focused organization preparing the youth for future jobs, pre preparing them is not enough because the, the journey for, for the tech talent doesn't end over there. Right? It ends when they are absorbed into the system, either being employed, uh, become freelancers, start their own ventures. These are the things we are looking out for and creating a whole look of the businesses that emerge out of our programs, employ the people who start out in our communities. And so there's that continuous loop of creating internship opportunities, job opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. And for us, this is another big, exciting opportunity. Today, Twitter would start to consider talents from Ghana, not just for the Africa operations, but for their global operations, right? And that is a very, very exciting thing to know for the first time that they look to Ghana for talent for their business, right? And for most of the tech firms, most of the talent, uh, most of the tech talents in, in the country, we are now going to see a much more vibrant Twitter developer community. We are going to see a much more vibrant uh, activity from the other tech part, uh, other tech companies that hadn't considered Ghana as a hotspot to develop their communities. And for tech technology companies like these, especially Twitter being a tech firm championing free and accurate information sharing, organizations of such archetypes are powered by the communities they build. And you realize that Twitter has built a platform and the content is curated by the people who live on the platform. And you and I knew very well how much Ghanaians contribute on Twitter, right? 
we, we are, we, we, there are over 500 million tweets shared every single day. And a significant portion of that comes from the Africa continent. And so they decided to set up shop stem from 2018 2019 when jack dorsey visited africa to understand clearly what is going on here and how can they position themselves so this is a conversation that started somewhat two three years ago spiking the interest of the co-founder uh, of the founder and ceo of twitter and today we see the the materialization of that he visited ghana didn't spend that much time as he spent in nigeria but i believe as time went on, we started to see significant shifts in, in, in our, our leaders' decisions and rebranding Ghana, repositioning, repackaging Ghana to be a destination of investment. And we see that happening. So, yeah. I mean, that, that, that does a lot in terms of putting things into perspective. But um, I mean, now that the announcement has been made, has been finalized, um, can you give us a sense of, you know, because um, we, we've seen, obviously, the announcements about the recruitment and things like that. So where is the office going to be located, <laughs> you know, and things like that? Is it, I mean, is it, I saw, because when I saw that, there's, there's a lot of remote working and things like that. So if you could give us some idea about that as well. Yeah, uh, announcing, announcing that shop is it's only a tip of the iceberg, right? There's a whole corporate due diligence process typically have to go through to get the shop fully set up. And this isn't like uh, Google's AI center where Google already had footprints in Ghana prior, shifted their, uh, uh, brought in their C-squared uh, regional office into Ghana and later set up the Google AI Center. And so that is a different conversation. But this, this is the first time they're stepping foot into the continent. It's the first time they're setting foot into Ghana, uh, as in officially into Ghana. So they have to go through all those processes. I, I, I do not work at Twitter, uh, full disclaimer, and I do not have information regarding where the office is going to sit or when they are going to be fully operational. But I'm sure for certain that it's going to happen before the year ends. And so uh, this is not just a, a, a buzz. This is actually something that is materializing. And what's most exciting is the fact that our president participated in this activity, right? Rarely would you find an organization coming to set up and want to go to the president for his blessings. And Twitter doing this is a gesture of understanding, uh, of, of, uh, of, of positioning themselves as understanding the culture in Africa, right? You can't visit, uh, you can't commit any developmental project in, for example, the Ashanti region without paying homage to, to the king, right? And so can you not, set up something of this magnitude in the country without paying homage to the president. And as far thinking as our president is, saw how he appreciated and embraced the opportunity and saw the significance of this to the brand Ghana, to the investment positioning, the opportunity, the global opportunity perception index of the country and, and its ripple effects. 
And you see how excited everyone is about the opportunity. I am equally very, very excited, uh, very, very overwhelmed. It was, it was, it was, it was difficult to to hold on to this news until it's officially broken. But today we see it, and everyone is equally excited. So we look forward to what the future holds for us. Well, um, I'm sure the future will be very, very bright, Foster. Foster, thank you so much um, for the insights shared and um, all the very best to yourself and the Hack Lab team as you continue to pursue even more um, um, adventures, either with Twitter or with whichever organization um, that will hopefully open up the technology space a little more. Um, in Ghana and across the continent. Foster, Akubi, thank you so much uh, for making time to join us on the show. Uh, thank you very much, Philip. You do have a wonderful Looking at expanding and basically everything else that surrounds it. Well, one of the biggest topics um, over the course of the pandemic period since last year had to do with education and the changing phase of education. What exactly is going on with that particular sector? Um, we all have a good appreciation of the quote-unquote challenges of the educational sector in Ghana, but it seems technology is trying to turn things around. Well, one of the institutions that is looking at doing something about that and actually through the pandemic period decided to make some things happen is leader freak international and i'm joined today by michael Ohenefa, who is the co-founder of leader freak just to get an a sense of what sort of education are we looking at post-pandemic or during the pandemic because well it's not said the pandemic has gone anywhere well michael thank you so much for joining us on the show Thank you very much, Philip. Uh, as always, happy to share. So, what will be your assessment of the impact of the pandemic on education, specifically in Ghana? I, I don't think we have as yet done a very thorough assessment of the impact of the pandemic. First of all, we need to even situate what impact we are looking at. Are we looking at impact on the learners? Are we looking at impact on educators? Are we looking at impact on school businesses? Are we looking at impact on parents? Are we looking at the psychological impact of the disruption on the lives of our young people? For some of them, this is the first of such events in their lives. And so when we talk about impact, I think that um, we haven't as yet been able to assess how this thing is impacting Ghana. Of course, uh, Ghana's conversations always seem to revolve around Accra, Kumasi, Takradi. What we haven't done is how is this impacting on the children in Wild West District who may not even have, one, enough teachers, two, internet, three, gadgets, for them to even assess the online solutions that we are talking about in Accra here. I mean, sometimes I tell people, don't go far, just go 20 kilometers out of Accra and you will see the real Ghana. And so I think that we need to really have conversation around the varied impact 
of the COVID pandemic on just the education sector. Because there are education businesses, there are people who run schools as business. I think the impact of that hasn't been looked at. I mean, some of them lost about 70% of their income. Some lost teachers because they couldn't pay. Some have had their infrastructure, you know, deteriorating because of lack of either continuation or non-use of, of these infrastructure. We haven't looked at how teachers have had to rescale and retool themselves to be able to deliver online programming that they were not trained for. We haven't looked at how um, the children themselves have had to adjust to a new way of learning, of not interfacing with their mates for as long as nine months. Uh, so there are a lot of impacts that I don't think, I think it is lost in the discussions. Um, every time we've had the addresses and the press conferences, you are not getting the exact things that is really happening within the education environment. And uh, I may uh, suggest to you that we need to break down these impacts and talk to the specific subsectors within the, the, the larger education environment because people are really struggling. And, and, and hopefully that will get give us a better picture of the quote-unquote impact exactly. of the pandemic. So it would seem premature then to even start looking at how technology has transformed anything because it's just it it sounds honestly when you look at it from that perspective like like a 0.1 percent of everything you are very right you are very right and and that's how conversations in ghana usually happen you know we discuss just the tip of the iceberg and and we leave the root cause foundational issues unattended to because in all of this um, I think the government has been overly focused on uh, examinations and continuation of its flagship program to the detriment of the other aspects of education. And so you are right. We haven't been talking about more than 1% of the impact of COVID on Ghana's education system. Then it makes it difficult for us to have this conversation in the first place. But because, I mean... And, and it is true when you think about it, especially when you make reference to children in Sisala West, for example. Where are they getting education from? How are they going to get education? So, I mean, moving beyond how bleak the situation seems, what would be the best way? Because obviously tech and technology will have an, a big role to play in where we move our education to. Either in terms of the changing of the face of education, which is either you're moving to an e-learning platform or you're making more videos available either through whichever platform it is that you're going to create or the training of the teachers to actually even use the platforms. How ready are the students to even adapt to the new platforms that are available for them to learn? Where, where, where do you believe we should start the conversation from? Because honestly, when you sit back and you look at it, it's a very daunting task for whoever has to make that decision. Yeah, you are very right. Um, to where do we start from? Let me offer you what UNESCO has recommended. Uh, UNESCO says that we must begin to use distance learning programs and open educational applications and platforms that schools and teachers can use to reach learners remotely and limit the disruption. 
Now, I think that's a sane advice for our education policy makers. Um, when we talk about technology, there are a number of um, options available to us as a country. I like, for instance, TV. TV is something that we can easily deploy. We're, you know, very cost effective. You know, we can use TV to teach even in the local languages and children who cluster around a television set can still receive learning with maybe one uh, uh, instructor helping them on the ground. We can use radio. And before this, you see, the, the development sector, the NGO community is always ahead of government. There is an NGO called uh, Talking Books who are using um, books, basically radio, but with educational content. And this is powered by battery, you know, the AA2 or A1 batteries. And so they don't need electricity to even use it. And every talking book is used by 10 children in a community. And, and they can meet and discuss and share the learning and grow together. You know, and this can easily be done in any language. Uh, then, of course, we have the web and mobile applications that uh, organizations like us have developed. But the, the whole thing is that we need to sit together you know, all the stakeholders, private sector, government, NGO, schools, and have this national conversation about where are we going? How are we going to get there? It appears to me as if that conversation is not being had. The issues have been on writing of exams. The issues have been on increment of school fees and provision of infrastructure. Rather, exactly, exactly. That has been our focus, and that has been the focus of our educational managers for almost 60 years. And the, the evidence suggests that this over focus on roots learning, on chew, poor, pass, and forget, on infrastructure, on pass rate, and others is actually leading to poorer educational outcomes for Ghanaian children. So what I keep telling people is that COVID is an invitation, an invitation for us to review and revise how we are teaching, and, and not just teaching, in medical care, in, in uh, retail, in media, in everything. COVID is an invitation. We need to accept and take that invitation go back to the drawing board and then begin to change the way we live and work. If we don't do that and we let this opportunity pass us by, history will never forgive our generation. Where do we start the conversation from? Because, like you said, the administrators have been at this for the past 60 or so years. I am sure they've been to a number of conferences. There have been a lot of conversations and yet, we don't seem to be ready to make the move. A lot of the solutions that we see, technology, quote-unquote, solutions, are mainly focused on the urban areas, Accra, Kumasi, Takrade, and the like. But there needs to be a more holistic sort of approach to changing education in Ghana. Where, where do you think we have to begin a conversation from? You spoke about a stakeholder conversation. But that won't be the first time we're having a stakeholder conversation without any proper impact being felt after. So really, where do we start a conversation from? It's a good question. And um, knowing what, because you see, Ghana has gone through a number of education reforms. 
I mean, we've, we, I think currently we have about, I'm not too sure, but we've gone through about five different education reform programs. Uh, you remember Professor Jangma, the Jangma Committee? We've had a lot of these things. Unfortunately for me, from where I sit, as an independent actor in the education space, now I see three things that have happened with our reforms. One, there's been the transactional reforms the cosmetic ones. Um, let's change the name. Let's change the duration. Uh, let, let's change the uniform. Let, those are cosmetic. They don't lead to anything. It doesn't add to the human beings who are the products of the education system. Then we've had the very transactional ones. Uh, you name it high school, I name it secondary school. You name it JHS, I name it this. And uh, should it be three years or four years? Should it be this or that? And who gets the credit for the the highest pass rate and, and who has, you know, given more scholarships. And what we need, first of all, we need to agree that we need a transformational change, not cosmetic, not transactional, transformational. And so that would then guide the kind of conversations we must have. That would then guide who we invite to the table. It appears to me that the changes that we have done so far has been heavily determined by the unions, and somebody can take me on it. And so it's always been about what will be in the best interest of the very powerful union, the teacher unions. And so they always dictate the pace and the direction, and then sometimes also the politicians take, you know, educating Ghanaian children should not be a manifesto ping pong. It should be a national development imperative. It should be driven by the national development agenda, not by politicians, some of whom know little about education. So we need to agree on this first. Then, of course, the GES and the Ministry of Education are the managers. GES is singular because it is both a manager and a regulator. And so they must start first, and they must start from the question, for me, this is the fundamental question. What kind of Ghanaian do we need to run Ghana in the next 100 years? And that is what should guide the conversation. Once we can agree on that, we'll be able to agree on the building blocks for producing that Ghanaian. The question hasn't been asked. And so we keep toying with the duration and the length and the how to do the assessment and the test and the test because we haven't quite gotten to what kind of Ghanaian are we producing for Ghana in the next 100 years? And so we come in as, okay, uh, let's change the duration. Let's change the uniform. Uh, now teachers should do exams. Now, no, they shouldn't do exams. Uh, no, we need... But we haven't answered the question. What, what is the effort? What is the output of all these changes that we are making? We haven't answered that question. And so everybody now especially employers and senior managers will tell you that they have a headache recruiting because consistently and gradually the quality of the human resource that Ghana is producing is being deteriorated. It is one thing to see government trying to do the reform. We've sat around and we've seen government do the reform or try to do the reform for a very long time. It's very clear that Private actors will definitely have a say in it, as we've seen across the globe. Whether it is a private business like Facebook or Google or Twitter, there will always be a moment where a disruption will happen. And typically, as we've seen in the past, it is usually led by technology.
can you tell us about that transformational point that we seem to be seeing today we have quite a number of tech solutions which are education focused obviously having their limits because they are supposed to operate within a wider ecosystem but then there seems to be a shift in in the approach can you tell us about your opinions on that that's a very very important question for our time what happens in the advanced economies is that when private sector takes the lead with any initiative government comes to support to be able to grow the idea and so uptake grows very quickly it gets very mainstream quickly because of government push and support a lot of actors in the Ghanaian education space are doing a lot but there hasn't been national uptake and so you have uh, my friend Cecil's e-campus so far there hasn't been a national adoption or a national partnership there are others who are doing lots of stuff people like us have now come out with myleadershipfarm.com which is a, an e-learning platform you watch nobody will mind you because one you don't have a party card because two you are not uh, related to a politician who will get you to do something you know and the ones that have the access to the political power also are not because their motive is wrong their solutions can't reach anywhere so this is where we stand look at how china and india are supporting their tech businesses you know but here you come out of a solution gs doesn't want to talk to you even to get appointment of officials is a problem because they don't see you they don't see you in the space in which they are they are more interested in uh, other stuff so that is the big challenge i mean the number of education uh, uh, solutions that have been developed if there was a national uptake of even 20 percent of that ghana wouldn't be where we are today and then the other one is we need the existing big players in the private sector to support these up-and-coming solutions and we have big boys the banks the telcos you know the oil and gas businesses and others they should begin to deploy their corporate social responsibility money very well because in the absence of government leading and uh, i remember at one conversation one uh, professor uh, said that the most loneliest idea in ghana is an idea without a procurement opportunity <laughs> <laughs> so the solutions have been provided but in the absence of a national push these solutions you only sign on uh, 20 private schools but that is not enough because of just the sheer amount of work we do to be able to bring these solutions out there and so if you pay attention almost every solution goes to private schools and the private schools are not enough for the kind of you know volume exactly impact i mean look at every year at the uh, 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 wasi uh, senior second school 520,000 people and these are final years so imagine that government was to deploy and support some of these education look at final years 520,000 you would see opportunity you know so let's look at the entire system there are 834 or 36 secondary schools in this country with an average population between 600 and 900 some have 3,000. so multiply that by eight and look at the possibility that's how we grow giants 
That's how we grow giants. But in Ghana, we haven't been. We're, we're the Ghanaian tech giants. So you come out with a solution, only 50 private schools, and that is even when you consider yourself very successful. Mm. Only 50 private schools will buy. The public sector will not touch you until somebody sees a procurement opportunity. So this is the challenge. And, and I'm calling on government. We need to stop this uh, uh, you know, silo thinking mentality. What is wrong with growing Ghanaian multi-millionaires who are ed-tech entrepreneurs? What, what is wrong with that? Won't they employ Ghanaians? Won't they pay taxes? What is wrong with growing our own Mark Zuckerbergs in this country? Probably is the color of the money, whether it is green or blue. But we'll, we'll shelve that for another day. One of the solutions from the private sector and from your end, actually, is one of the things I wanted us to highlight. Walk us through the solution. Walk us through how people can be a part of it, how people can benefit from it, how schools and agencies, and if government eventually gets, you know, the push, will probably look at, at, at doing it. So, um, Leader Frick was set out to uh, be a complementary education provider. Um, we established Leader Frick because of a passion to change the kind of products that are coming from the education system. And so, right from inception, we were determined to complement the, the core curriculum in our schools. And so, we focus on leadership global competencies and soft skills as an addition to whatever a child was receiving in the classroom to to uh, make them rounded and holistic because ordinarily this should be provided by the core education system but in ghana it wasn't and so we develop our own leadership curriculum for children from ages 6 to 18 and we call that the africa leadership toolkit but as i was saying uptake nationally has been very difficult. So we've been operating in three regions, Ashanti, Eastern, Greater Accra, mainly with private schools, occasionally doing short, short programming in the public schools. Now, when COVID um, struck and schools were shut down, about 80% of our business was shut down because there were no schools operating, so we couldn't go to schools. Now, our model then had been to train facilitators who were mainly undergraduate volunteers that we had trained. So we had a cadre of them that we called certified school facilitators. So we trained them and then certified them to be able to do exactly facilitate our uh, curriculum, uh, which was mainly leadership and then uh, soft skills. And so we had to come to the drawing table and say, what can we do? And that is when we decided that we're going to turn our physical training into online programs. And so now we have been able to turn a part of, we haven't finished, we are still developing the courses, but we have now developed 100 courses, which are mainly focused on soft skills, on leadership, on how to be a great human being, basically. <laughs> That's what our, 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 we seek to do. Yes, full-rounded individual with all the skills that you need to relate with your uh, other person. We have a heavy focus on the young people. Uh, so right from six years, any child, if, in fact, a bright child of five can learn on our platform. And uh, for as short as three minutes, six minutes, nine minutes, I think the longest course is about 17 minutes. So in nine minutes, you can learn a course on myleadershipfarm.com. And this course is not the technical 
courses. These are courses that make you a great human being, that make you know how to relate and live with others. And so we have courses for now that helps children to identify who they are and identify why they are on F. We will build on. We have a whole suite that will teach them about entrepreneurship. We have a whole suite or bouquet of courses that will teach them about communication skills. We have a whole bouquet of courses that will teach them about volunteering and leading communities. So that is on the children. Then we have specific courses for teens and undergraduate uh, students. And they to can, for instance, uh, how do you learn how to attend an interview with ease? For nine minutes, you can learn it on myleadershipfarm.com. And so there's that. And, and we have a whole course on relationships. So you are an undergraduate student, the butterflies have started jumping in your stomach. How do you deal with it? How do you make the right choice? You can learn for nine minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes on myleadershipfarm.com about how to make the right choice of a lifetime partner. So that is the, the way we've created myleadershipfarm.com to be. You know, back in the day, when you had an issue and you went to ask your dad, you would ask you, go and ask the old lady, which is your grandmother. So you say, Yabi Yomwe, or So we had a grandmother who we could go to. Today, all the grandmothers are the guitar grandmothers. So what we are creating, myleadershipfarm.com, is to be a digital grandmother. Your go-to place for things that nobody will give you an answer to. Um, we have, for instance, um, a, a, a course on how do you effectively discipline your child. Aha. Uh -huh. I mean, we, we, we have a whole suite of courses on parenting because it's a big part of our mission as leader freak. We are very family-oriented and focused. And so we have a whole course on discipline. How do you understand your teenager's brain so that you avoid the clashes that you've been having with him or her? Exactly. So that's, that's the, 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 the nature of my leadership farm. It's not technical as in the other education uh, uh, providers, but it's in line with our mission to complement what um, our, our young people are getting. We have added uh, corporate courses family courses, parenting courses, because we realize that you cannot train children without their parents. Otherwise, the work that you are doing will be uh, destroyed and distracted. And so we have added professional, even with the professional, we are not doing too much of technical courses. We are doing courses that you, you struggle to find answers to. How do you live and work with difficult people? That's the kind of courses that are on myleadershipfarm.com. How do you chair a meeting? Maybe you are a new manager. Yeah. You've been asked to chair a meeting. How do you chair that? Quickly rush to myleadershipfarm.com. In 15 minutes, you take a course on how to run a meeting. So basically, the platform, and I'm guessing this is mostly web-based, mostly web-based, is supposed to give you everything that will lead you to become a complete human, yes. a complete citizen of Ghana, That's the right. kind of citizen that you envision who will be leading Ghana in the next 100 years, exactly. as you said. So let us, so walk us through how people can access the platform and um, if, you know, any other details about how they can access the courses as well. Let's, let's have that. It's very simple. You just, whatever browser, just uh, uh, type in myleadershipfarm.com and you are there. Um, you register because we want uh, data to be able to know who we are serving. Uh, once you register, you get a confirmation email 
to confirm your email address and then to log in uh, your details and that's it uh, currently you would see a hundred courses with uh, 30 free courses there are as many as 30 free courses uh, mainly from some of the programs we've done on effective living series and other uh, uh, public programs and so those are free once you have registered you can learn for free uh, for the paid courses some are as little as 1.5 Ghana CDs and um, you, you just pay through Momo, uh, debit card, or any other uh, online payment, and you are there. Um, as I said, some of the courses are really short uh, and sweet. And our courses have been designed to be very interactive. Um, you, once you complete a course, you will get a certificate. And so you learn, you have fun, you make an investment in your personal development, and you get a certificate for it. Yeah. Well, you did mention Cecil Nutako, and Cecil is um, founder of eCampus. So we are going to zip on to speak to Cecil and find out exactly what his experience have also been during the pandemic as a technology entrepreneur, probably looking more at the technical bits of what has been going on and what must be done. Still tuned in to CC Trends on 97.3 City FM. <laughs> So we are with Cecil Nutako, as um, Michael Ohinefa rightly pointed out, um, trying to get a sense of the next leg of the conversation um, in terms of what a technology will mean if we are to build an education that will see leaders coming out of Ghana for the, or West Africa or Africa for the next 100 years to come. Cecil, thank you so much for joining us. CEO, founder of eCampus. You've had cause to be very um, skeptical of our educational system in the past. One of the main reasons why you set up eCampus in the first place. Not necessarily as something that will fight the system, but something that will complement the system and make the system better. Where are we? All right, thanks, Philip. Uh, it's nice to always be here. So... Like you said, uh, from 2003, I had my doubts if this model we have is sustainable. And for my love of computers, I felt they were a very pretty interesting tool that we could use to make education more engaging and more fun. And people could actually learn based on their own path, not being forced to learn. But the challenges were real. When I started back in 2000 and 2003, even the computer penetration rate was not that much. Uh, it took the ICT facilitated development policy in 2004-2005 under President Kufour and the World Bank to actually open up that space. And I must admit that that has really opened up the IT space in Ghana. It made ATMs popular. Before then, there were no smartphones, so there was Mobitel. Before then, there were ISPs. Today, there are no ISPs because your SIM card is the ISP. So we've made progress that we will take it away as a people we've made progress and we need to celebrate those progress the challenge has been that there are pockets of progress that are not interconnected so whereas telecom have done so well telecommunications have done so well to expand to areas that normally even electricity hasn't gotten to yet because they power their own towers with or their own their towers with what diesel generators and all of that so they've done very well but where they carry education along that's the question i keep asking when they were doing did we really sit to interconnect that okay 
when they get to Bogoso, how many schools are we connecting? That conversation didn't come up. Giftel, which is a Ghana uh, investment fund for electronic communication, is a fund set up where a percentage of the revenues from telcos and other big IT companies, that's 1%, goes there to fund these rural areas where maybe it will not be profitable for the telcos to go invest maybe $500,000 to put up infrastructure and there are only 100,000 people or 50 times people living there. So GIFEC also comes in to support by expanding the infrastructure. So there are these pockets of initiatives, but we need that glue. That's what has been missing from my perspective. The glue that will link it together. And for me, I think the glue is startups like us. Right, startups who are trying to fix specific things. All right, and when we say education, let's not limit it only to primary school, high school, like what talkative moms that's serious education. Like what Michael is doing with the kids and even professional development that's education, serious education. So, we, we, are, we are all trying to fix the problem from different angles because what is a big elephant you have to tackle it from all angles. Where is the glue? Yes, I work with Michael because I've known him for so many years. So we know where we collaborate. People may think, ah, my what leader free just launched an online platform. So your own friend is competing. I say, no, the content is providing. There's no way I can provide that content. So we need to glue. Then, okay, what about those who are doing purely e-learning for people who have interest in what? A health career. How do we link those guys to? We got privileged that when the pandemic hit at the peak of it, Vodafone, MTN, Selfline reached out because what six, seven years before we were reaching out to them, trying to see how we can put our uh, e-campus or zero rated on their network so the problem of internet goes away. At the time, they said, okay, we needed some huge, like some significant number of people on our platform to make it profitable to them. But when COVID hit, because we're in their database, they reached out. So everybody wants to help. You see, so every so we need some glue that will constantly be reminded, hey, you remember you have to help this guy? Oh, you remember you have to partner with this guy? Oh, you remember you need to go for this? So if we can have, let me not put you on the spot, but if we can get the media do more to be the glue, because creating conversations like this are waking people up, but it has to be intentional, constructive, right? And that will help us reimagine education and revitalize it. Because the infrastructure problem will always be there. Even the United States, they have some infrastructure problem. So what I want us to do so that we don't overstretch ourselves is, can we bring education along with telecom? One of the most successful industries we've had in the past decade has been the telecom sector. They've helped drive fintech. They've helped drive agritech. Why can't they help drive edtech? They can. We just have to have the right conversations. There are devices we've, we've at, at e-campus level, we've had conversations with Huawei, where they are willing to get us devices to as low as $50 per device, which, is, which you can't get anywhere. So everybody wants to help. Who would drive it and be that glue to bring everybody on board? If we can get EdTech or if we can get content, which we have, we have a platform, and the likes of Michael also have alternative content, other people have alternative content. If we can let this content and technology be accessible to everybody that is within the coverage area of MTN, Vodafone, Airtel Tigo, Glow, Selfline, Busy, we are making a headway, trust me. 
we would be making a real headway. And once we get there and we see the gaps, then we know that, okay, although the mask is here, there are some few gaps. How do we put in some repeaters to reach those people? Then when we reach those critical mass, then at least we now have real data to start making more informed decisions on what the next steps should be. So the first steps in the next three, four years or next five years should be to make sure that wherever there is telecommunication coverage, internet coverage, 3G coverage in this country, a child, a mother, a, what, a cousin or a learner should be able to pick up a device and connect to whatever platform it is and consume content that will be relevant to their day-to-day -day existence. In your opinion, that is the starting point. Once we're able to get that, what it means is that people have ready access to the information, to study, to learn. I, I, I hear you on that, but we also understand that there are practical challenges to getting these devices to these locations. How do you suggest that we solve that? Okay, so when it comes to devices, Right now, the first major problem I see, which is the reality, I've said this on your show before, is electricity. That's the first one, but we cannot solve it automatically. The second layer would then be access to internet. The third is device. So device actually at the, the latter end, because if we have electricity and we have internet connectivity, trust me, we can run a campaign with city trends and I guarantee you will get a million used device in this country to distribute across the country. So that is not the issue here, all right? The main issue is, can I have connectivity? Because the most frustrating thing is to have a device not being able to connect, don't even to charge it. It's more frustrating. <laughs> that is even more frustrating. So let's, let's not jump ahead of ourselves. The device problem is not a big deal. There's a whole policy on e-waste within the European Union we can tap into. There's a whole, that policy is even evolving quickly in Asia. And so device is not a problem. The problem now is how do we make sure that the little device or the small amount of devices we have today are even connected? If they are connected, I bet you a, a, a simple what, 13 in tablet, right, can have what, at up to eight children gather around it and learn. If that tablet can be charged consistently and have connectivity consistently, that's eight kids learning around one tablet and interacting with it. So the device problem is a secondary problem. Let's deal with the primary problem of making sure that if I get there and I turn on my Wi-Fi, it picks something. Say, oh, okay, maybe learning connectivity, something from, from the telecos. Where we need to, because yeah, they're also running a business, so we need to find a way to compensate them for that level of what? connectivity they are providing for everybody then when they use it for a year or two then we have real because there will be monitoring usage the number of time people spend uh, how much the connectivity cuts and come back what kind of content they are consuming which region and which district who are the people what age groups are connecting with that data for one or two years or even maximum 18 months now we can now sit down and make real decisions on okay what kind of content why are these people behaving this way? Okay, what kind of investment? And if you make that content, that data, that intelligence available to private sector, then you can have proper PPPs that are targeting real solutions. And within six to 18 months, we have a concrete solution. 
But, yes, because for now, we don't have the data. So everything, people are repeating, duplicating things here and there. I understand we don't have data. So to get to where we have data, let's not burden ourselves with new investments. The telcos have done massive investment already. And there are devices in those areas. Let's be backing on that. Now, thanks to Vodafone, MT, and Selfline, you don't need internet to use eCampus. So we, that means anywhere you are in this country, and you have a device, and there's MTN, Vodafone, or Selfline. You can use eCampus without having to pay for data. So we're getting somewhere. Okay, what kind of content needs to be on eCampus? Is it only the academic stuff or the lifestyle one thing? Okay, then let me talk to Michael. Michael, how do we work piggy, piggy bank on your content to now reflect through eCampus or eCampus content reflect through mm -hmm. Michael's own, and he's also not needing internet to access? Then now we're getting what, behavioral data on who is consuming what. At what time, based on which we now have a data set to now sit down and say, okay, private sector, public sector, media, this is the information. How can we use this information to create the glue so that the glue can stick for a lifetime because it's based on data? Those are the practical things we can do now. And I think CTFM can lead this. We need to get the Ministry of Communication involved, Ministry of Education involved, and then what? private sector, of course, some of us who are into this, let's just have a conversation. The telcos are willing to help because there's a ripple effect. If the kids get glued to your network and they like it, the only thing they are not paying for is maybe two, three apps, but the rest, they'll pay for it. So there is a way, you know, I don't want to spell doom. There is no doom, trust me. The pandemic is here to help us reimagine and revitalize the way we deliver learning and absorb what? Content. Let's take advantage of it. Which brings me to at least my final question, more or less. The reimagining of education, because the pandemic has given us an opportunity to do exactly that. We've complained in the past about the structure of our educational system and things like that. How do you feel technology, or what role do you feel technology will play in helping us reimagine that educational system that we look forward to? Because we know that we've tried a number of things in the past. A lot of it has been distraught because of political changes here and there. But really and truly, when we get that glue in place, when we get that distribution in place, when we get that electricity and that power in place, what sort of conversations should we be having from a technical standpoint about how we reimagine our educational system? So I'll, I'll bring it back to standards. You see, and I'm happy what NACA is trying to do. That's the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment. Right. Once we have standards on what con how content should look like, because remember, you, you can have the most sophisticated technology without content, it's really much a white elephant. All right. And also with the right content standards, how they should be delivered, how they should be engaged, influence what kind of technology we should build. Because the tools to build the technology are all over the place. So if I am imagining that, okay, if I were a primary school student, this is how I would want to learn. So I will build a technology like that because there are no standards that I'm comparing to. So if we can, I'm happy they are, they are, re, they are redoing this, the, the national uh, SAT, NSAT that they are introducing. They call it the national uh, something assessment test, right? That's going to replace the BEC right going forward so that when you when you get to primary three uh, primary three you take that gets primary six you take that so that they can have a, exactly 
to create some standard. So let's pay attention to those standards. Yes, it's National Standardized Assessment Test. So once you have a standard, whatever technology needs to be built must be built around the standard. And I'm happy if you look at the new curriculum that's coming. They, they have more, they are being focused more on engagement than just what, uh, passive assessment. So they want you to actually do some of the things so that the teachers will observe you and then mark you. So what it means is that at a point in eCampus, I should be able to build some form of what? Observation algorithm that will watch you through the camera and observe how you behave in performing some tasks and then record your movements, your facial gestures, and feed that into your assessment. But if that standard is on, wasn't there, if they hadn't mentioned it, I wouldn't have been thinking of this in our R&D department on A. We need to introduce this into eCampus to make it more relevant to the standard. You know what I mean? So FinTech did very well because they're clear standards. So I'll urge the NACA Ghana Education Service, look, we want to help. We, we're not fighting you people. We want to help. Let's all build some standards. Maintain those standards for a decade. Build technologies around those standards. That is when we can make the best out of technology. Otherwise, if you let a technology get ahead, everybody wants want to say, my technology is the better, it gives the best results. Based on what standard? And if you're not careful, then we, are, we will probably mislead the knackers and the GES and the, those who are supposed to be neutral and guide based on facts to lean towards the most popular technology that we miss the boat. So for now, so you, you've known me for a while. That's why we don't like to push e-campus on people's truth, like take it as the best. No, no, no. Let things fall in place so that you can have a long-lasting solution. So let's have a conversation around standards. And let's not copy what's happening in Singapore. Let's not copy what's happening in Europe. Let's not copy what's happening in America. We can create our own stuff. We know how our people behave. You know what I mean? Our children learn better by doing. You know what I mean? I can't do granola soup now, right? But the little girl at my auntie's place, when he eats her granola soup, and she's not 13. Because she's been doing it, helping mommy, helping auntie. So if that is how they can learn chemistry, is how they can learn atomic energy, why don't we create a standard that exposes them to atomic energy in that way? That I'll be forced to do research and development to build a technology that can bring that standard to the child at home or on demand. So for me, I think if we get... Do we get to the gluing stage and we create this standard? Then now, okay, here, how do we glue? Hey, what does the standard say? Glue. Okay, at this point, how do we move forward? What does the standard say? Which technology works better? Glue. Then progressively, we can, we can have an educational system that will benefit those who are going to come 100 years from today. And I'm guessing that in all of this, like you're talking about, eCampus has also been doing a lot of re um, innovation as well and a couple of changes. Um, walk us through some of these changes that eCampus has been up to. So the, the fundamental change based on the engagement we had, I think when COVID got to its peak uh, in, in March, <laughs> it was crazy. In, in, in less than 24 hours, uh, we had grown by 5,000% in new users. Uh, at the point, we got like six emails from Firebase, Google, Amazon, at the same time telling us to increase our resources else we're going to crash. It was like literally, okay, this is what we've been waiting for every day, watching the dashboard, everything. Like, like practically, tears were dropping out of my mind. Oh my God, this is happening. 
So quickly we had to increase our resources, pay more money, and this was fun. So we said, okay, now that we've grown too quickly in less than 24 hours, what are the customers telling us? So we did a customer success thing, did an interview, like we actually called, because if you send them the Google form, they won't fill it. So we send you the form and we call you and answer it on your behalf. What we realized was that the students or the users were more concerned about content. They were like, eh, but I didn't see enough content. They were like, what kind of content? Say, we took your assessment, and the assessment told us that we are weak in this topic. Then when we're eager to go get the content to learn, when we got there, it was only notes, there was no video yet, there was no podcast yet, and, and, and we didn't like it. When would the videos be ready? So we're like, okay, but you like the assessment? Like, yeah, the assessment makes you feel good when you perform very well with the topic, but it makes you feel like, ah, so all these years I didn't, I'm not, okay, let me go check what is there. So that kind of killed their vibe some way, you know? So like, okay, when would the content be ready? And to be honest, we told them the truth, that look, content development is expensive. So we're going to look at, okay, we, we spoke to about 2,000 of them. So we're going to look at which topics out of the 2,000 are like maybe for, uh, 60% in demand, 80% in demand, okay. and then we start spending money to build that gradually. But we encourage them to continue taking the assessment to end the points. And then that came the reason, okay, how do we make them get value from the points at this point whilst we are now building what they really want, which is the videos and the podcasts and the illustrations. So quickly we created a point exchange, like a stock exchange, where you can go there and trade maybe a thousand points for three months subscription. 500 points for maybe one month subscription. So you don't have to be paying that 9.99 every month for not having your video. So they will not come back, because I want video. I've paid 9.99, I didn't get my video, I won't come back. Why should I keep paying 9.99? Oh, if I keep paying 9.99, I'll end points, and I can use those points to subscribe for the next month to make my 9.99 back. And by the time the videos will be ready, I can actually trade my points for the videos and I won't spend money. So we have to think, because you can't make it free too. So at least, so they know that they pay the first 9.99, they make maybe what, 4,000 points, 6,000 points, you can trade for another courses and all of that so that you keep them and the good news once they are there they are generating behavioral data that's helping you shape the product so we're all building it together so that's one of the innovations uh, the pandemic pushed us to do so we're looking at how do we go beyond just monthly subscriptions so maybe the bookstores who are also struggling to sell books now can we have a conversation so that they convert 300 points to what a book you know so we also give you something uh, mobility maybe uber boats how do we convert what a thousand points on e-campus to a two kilometer ride just so the child feels that or the mother feels that oh my my daughter went to learn on e-campus and some points and now i can take an uber to the market with it so let's just create that whole ecosystem thing around it and and i think that has been very useful because during the pandemic these things became very valuable even mobility was so valuable during the pandemic access to basic food became a big deal in the pandemic you know what i mean so if we didn't going forward i could trade a point about 600 points for maybe a plate of asanka so that i can have my family can have a meal or pick up pizza somewhere so those are kind of innovations that we were pushed to do whilst waiting to give them the real value they want and i'm glad to the pandemic not because it killed people i'm glad to the pandemic because it made us understand what our customers actually need and it forced them to come on board, 
you know, and thanks to the likes like City and Co, people have made noise about us. Nobody was minding us. So I think when the pandemic hit, they all remember that, ah, there was some hiccup somewhere. So they all rushed there and then they were able to give us valuable information. And I think they came at a time that we were ready to receive them. And we got valuable insights from them. We know what they want is content. It's expensive, but we'll build it for them. So you guys hang in there, hang in there. We're going to get a lot of content. <laughs> well, you heard there, Cecil Nutako, who is the founder of eCampus, um, sharing with us some insights into how we can move to the next level with regards um, education in, in the country. This is where we draw the curtains down on the show for today. It's been such a pleasure coming your way. My name is Philip Sean and a big thank you, of course, to our sponsors, First National Bank. How can we help you? But until next week, stay techy. <laughs>